Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. I wonder, do we have such a passion that from the doors of our church, the echo of our mission and our, and our passion is that our doors and our hearts and our lives would be so open that lost people would become saved people. Here's what I want to give you tonight. If you're taking notes very quickly, just our little outline, think about this based on Acts 1.8. Number one, our master. Who is our master? Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses. I'm not to be a, 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 a witness of the late church or of the camp or of the Baptist State Convention or the Southern Baptist Convention. You're not to be just a witness of, of Moores Creek Church or anything of that nature. We are to be literally a witness for the Lord. Number two, the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, hey, y'all go out and sell the goods and let me know how it turns out. He doesn't say, bring me the receipts at the end of the day and let me know how many souls you've won. He said, you go, and by the way, I'm coming with you. In fact, he told him not to go till he got there. Number one, our master. Number two, our message. What's the sweetest word known to man? It's the word Jesus. And the sweetest two words, Jesus saves. But the sweetest three words, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. The world needs to hear that. By the way, do you know that not everybody knows the blessed old story of Jesus? A few months ago, I, we had a little bit of sound difficulty, some technical issues in our church. And I'm not very high tech, but the church as a whole kind of is. And so there at the end of the service, everything was kind of going haywire. And I said, it's all right, folks. We're just going to sing a song that everybody knows. And I lit into Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. And everybody started singing it. You could see people looking and tears coming down. It was so beautiful. As we closed that service out and I began to greet people as they left, this lady walked up to me and she hugged me. She said, Preacher, you made a mistake this morning. And I said, Well, I, I'm not surprised. She said, you said that we were going to sing a song that everybody knew. She said, preacher, I didn't grow up in church. And I'd never heard that song before. Now, I don't know about you, but it was hard for me to believe that anybody living in White Lake, North Carolina, had never heard the song, Jesus Loves Me. But it hit me now. When I go over to the mall or when I go into a restaurant and I look around, I wonder how many of those people do not know that Jesus loves them. You see, that's our message. Number three, our mission. That's what we'll talk about quickly tonight. Our mission. There are the places where the gospel is needed. I've already said that here, there, and everywhere. And then there are the people who need the gospel. Can I tell you, I'm a whosoever. There's a lot of debate today in our convention, a lot of debate amongst pastors and amongst Christians about who, who can be saved. I just believe whosoever can be saved. I believe when Jesus was hanging upon the cross, He looked to His left and said, I love you enough to die for you. And He looked to His right and He said, I love you enough to die for you. And one made the decision to accept, one made the decision to reject. I don't believe Jesus looked, for, looked at one and said, this is for you, but this isn't for you. I love you enough, but I don't love you enough. You are in the elect, but I'm sorry, you don't have a hope. Listen, friend, I'm thankful... I'm a whosoever. Let me give you this real quickly tonight as we have 17 minutes. It's 
It's a bad thing when I'm so long-winded in my introduction. Who needs Jesus? That's what the message is tonight. Who needs Jesus? Let me give it. It's just three people that need Jesus. Do you know that? Number one, the down and out. The down and out. Almost every day I have a call about somebody who's down and out. I did 47 funerals last year. I've done 10 so far this year. And about half in both years were people that should not have died. They overdosed. They took their life. All kinds of things. My Barnabas, my encourager, the one that called me every Saturday night, prayed with me over the phone, the only man alive that's ever kissed me, and he kissed me every Sunday morning right on the the jaw. I can still feel his old gruffly beard as he wept and kissed me and prayed with me every Sunday morning, and his son brutally killed him early one Monday morning. There's a, and, uh, on a, a stupor of drugs. There's a lot of people today that are down and out, and they need Jesus. Church, the reason I want to tell you this tonight, I'm so very afraid that the church is becoming so religious, so holy, so separate, so removed from society that we don't want to get our hands dirty. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, don't you? We don't have time to get into all the details tonight, but the religious folks passed a fellow on by. They didn't want to get their hands dirty. They didn't want to get involved. I've often wondered, and and I don't make excuses for the priest or the Levite, the preacher or the deacon. I don't want to make excuses for them, okay? But I wonder sometimes, was the preacher maybe on on, on his way to a hospital visit of a saint of God? It's great stuff. I do it every day. Or maybe he had a committee meeting or maybe he had a a convention meeting or an association meeting. Maybe he would have crossed the road, but he was so busy doing his church work. Just thought. The deacon, maybe he was, you know, in charge of the new building program. and, And when he saw that man that had been beaten and left for dead, he really wanted to, but he couldn't be late for the meeting because everything was depending upon. I don't know. I'm not making excuses, but the Bible doesn't tell us why they didn't stop. It may have been that they were just not concerned. It may have been that they were holier than thou. It may have been that they were too good or too preoccupied. Or it may have been they were just so busy doing the church work that they weren't doing the kingdom work. The down and out. All around us, people who are having hard times. By the way, do you know that hard times make hard people? Down and out people can be very difficult to reach because they become so calloused. And by the way, most down and out people do not expect church folks and Christian folks to stop and spend time with them. I'll give you three instances. Mark 10, blind Bartimaeus. Jesus was passing by. Woo! Blind Bartimaeus could see something that the disciples couldn't see. Mm, think about that. The disciples said, listen, you be quiet. He doesn't have time for somebody like you. Blind Bartimaeus saw the compassion of Jesus even though he couldn't see a thing. And he began crying out, Master, have mercy on me. If you could just restore my sight. And Jesus stopped. In fact, in the text, it said Jesus stood still. 
There's something to be said for that. Jesus stood still. The author and finisher of our faith stopped in his tracks and he healed blind Bartimaeus. Imagine the first thing blind Bartimaeus would ever see was the face of Jesus. I also think about John 4, the Samaritan woman. Probably my favorite story in all of the Bible. There's so much in that story. And the disciples, they got hungry. True story. So they went into the village to get something to eat and said, Hey, Jesus, are you coming with us? And he said, Sorry, fellas, I've got an appointment. Not a doctor's appointment. Not a dentist appointment. But a divine appointment. That's the best kind. And he sat down at a well and struck up a conversation with the woman. He shouldn't have been in the place with her. He shouldn't have been having a conversation because she was a woman. And she was a Samaritan and a sinning Samaritan after all. She was down and out, much like the song, the beautiful song that was sung. She didn't think anybody loved her. She thought the only thing men wanted from her won't necessarily good, y'all. Jesus dealt with her sin. He, 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 he didn't uh, sugarcoat it. He didn't say, oh, don't worry about it. He said, go and sin no more. He dealt with their sin. But then he gave her living water. By the way, I just want to give you this real quick in case I don't preach this this week. I want you to get it because I might die before I come back here. You never know. And I want you to get this. Do you know that the Samaritan woman was set free from her sin? The disciples would come back and see Jesus talking to her and said, what is he doing? They still got chicken wings or something in their hand because all they were worried about was lunch. And they come back and they said, does he not know who she is? He not only knew who she was, he could have plucked one hair out of her head and told you exactly which one it was. He knew everything about her, but he loved her. They said, she's one of those old down and out women. Jesus loved her though. They didn't understand it. It didn't make any sense. Here's what the Samaritan woman would do. The Bible said she left her pot, she ran back into the city, and she told everybody who Jesus was and what he had done for her. And you know something? Think about this. I mean, this is good. Think about this. The Samaritan woman accomplished something in her life that Jesus could not. The Bible said that Jesus went to his hometown and he did no mighty works there because of their unbelief. In Jesus' hometown, the people did not believe in Him. The Samaritan woman who had been married and shacking up and living all kinds of ways, who had such a terrible reputation, she had to go outside of the city in the middle of the day to the to the well when nobody else would have been around, hoping she could have avoided any kind of contact with anybody else. And she got saved, radically changed. She ran back into the hardest mission field imaginable to the place where she was the object of ridicule and scorn. And she ran in there telling everybody about Jesus. And if you follow that story down into the, the, the very last part of John chapter 4, the Bible said, and men... Many Samaritans came to faith in Jesus because of the sayings of that woman. That ain't bad for a down and outer. Don't you think the disciples were scratching their head and saying, Boy, I didn't see that one coming. So think about that. There's blind Bartimaeus. There's a Samaritan woman. There's one more and then we'll move on. Acts 3. Love this story. 
The Bible said that there was a man lame from birth, lame from his mother's womb, and he was laid every day outside of the gate of the temple. He could not come into the temple because of his condition. He was a down and outer. And every day he would lay there outside of the gate begging an alms, begging someone just to give him a penny, a nickel, a dime, anything. And day after day after day, the religious zealots would step over him, not giving him anything, much less the time of day or the attention that he needed. And on and on and on this went. He could not access the throne of God because he was on the outside like a lost person. Peter and John, Acts 3, the Bible said, And when they made their way into the temple at the hour of prayer, that they stopped... And Peter fastened his eyes on this man. Peter said, I'm sorry, sir. Silver and gold have I none. I like that part because sometimes when we get kind of down on our luck and we don't have as much in the bank as Jesse Duplantis told us we ought to. But anyway... We, we get so consumed with the fact that silver and gold have I none that we're not necessarily going to be worried about somebody else's situation, but I digress. So Peter fixed his eyes on this man. He said, silver and gold have I none, but what I have, I want to give you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take up and walk. You're going to walk, son. And the Bible said that ankles that had never bore weight, muscles that had never developed, joints that had never worked, instantly were radically made new and that old boy didn't get up and stroll. The Bible says he began leaping and jumping and praising the Lord and he turned and went into that temple where earlier he was not allowed. Now he was the guest of honor. You see, that's my heart that we find somebody that's down and out like Bartimaeus, like the Samaritan woman, like the lame beggar, and that we love them enough that we stop, that we sit down, that we fix our eyes on them, and that we give them the one thing that they desperately need. The down and out with Christ can be the up and the in. Let me just tell you real quick, just in case sometimes, like me, you might become a little bit arrogant in your Christianity. I didn't grow up in church. I went to a Christian school, but I didn't grow up in church. Uh, growing up from the time I was uh, four years old, I was best friends with another pastor. He's in Durham now. His name's J.D. Greer. He pastors a church, in, uh, largest church in North Carolina, one of the largest churches in the country. He grew up in church and man, he was, everybody knew he was going to turn into something and everybody knew he'd be the greatest preacher and all these kind of things. And when I surrendered to the call to preach, they looked at me and said, Oh my goodness, he's going to make a fool out of us all. And, and, and that's about the case. But here's the thing. Sometimes we get so religious, we forget that we're nothing but down and outers without Jesus. Let me give you a quick story. Missionaries had come through an Indian village sharing the gospel and witnessing And amazingly, the chief of this particular village got saved. I mean, really got saved. Well, those in the village had such respect for him, they were confused by this newfound faith that he had, and and, and they saw that it was sincere, that he was a different person, and his love and his compassion was overwhelming, and, and he was sharing this faith with everyone. But no one was receiving because it was so foreign to them. 
after being asked so many times about his faith, the chief gathered the entire village together. And as it was getting dark, he built a fire. And he took a small earthworm. And he put that worm right in the middle of this pile of leaves and brush and wood. He lit the fire around the outside and and as he began telling them about his faith and about this man named Jesus who could save them from their own sins, everybody began kind of watching this little worm as, as he began trying to escape the flame. But everywhere he went, the flame was surrounding him and getting closer and closer and hotter and hotter and the smoke was becoming more and more intense. And finally, when the fire was right to the point of that little worm, that Indian reached in burning and singeing the hairs upon his arm, and he grabbed that little worm, and he pulled the worm out safely. And he held that worm up and simply said, Me, worm. You see, that's what Jesus did for me. I'm nobody. I'm nothing important or significant. I came from dust one day, I'll be dust, but I'm dust that the Lord Jesus Christ loved enough that He was willing to die and take my punishment and my pain. And had He not done that like that little worm, I would have had no hope of salvation or rescue. Number one, who needs Jesus? The down and out. Number two, move quickly. The up and out. Now this might surprise you. If I were to tell you tonight that I was sponsoring a mission trip you would automatically think that I wanted to take you to go witness and and share the gospel and do work for poor people, right? But I tell you, there's a group of people in our communities, in every community, that somehow we are not reaching out to. We are intimidated by them. We are threatened by them. We somehow assume they're too good for our message or they would not open their door or their heart. But I want to tell you, I know a lot of wealthy people who desperately need Jesus. I know a lot of wealthy ones that's got Jesus. Praise God for that. But the up and the out. Now this goes against everything we think, but you may have a friend tonight and they may have everything that money can buy, but they don't have the one thing that money cannot buy. And unless we reach them, unless we become witnesses to them, they're going to bust hell wide open. And it don't matter if they're, if they're buried in a cardboard box or a solid copper casket, it's not going to matter. So number two, the up and the out. Let me give you a couple of things very quickly. Number one, the rich young ruler. Do you remember that? Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of of a needle than a rich man to go into heaven. The rich young ruler was faithful. He was religious. I mean, he did everything just right. If he were here tonight, whenever you said stand and turn in your hymnal, he would say, That's okay, I don't need a hymnal. I know all the words. But there was something missing. And Jesus knew it. Jesus said, you've got to go and sell all of your goods and give it to the poor. The rich young ruler looked to the ground and walked away because he wasn't willing. We understand that there are many people today that are trusting their riches until their riches can't get them out of the situation they're in. There are many people today that believe no matter what disease they get, certainly they can afford the treatment. But there's a terminal disease called sin that there's only one treatment for, and his name is Jesus. How about Zacchaeus, Luke 19? 
Zacchaeus had wealth, power, everything money could buy. And think about this. This is where really the rubber meets the road. Jesus came walking through Jericho. And all of the religious people were gathering. And they were praising Him and they were hailing Him as Savior and King. And can you imagine as this little runt Zacchaeus came up and wanted to get near Jesus? Zacchaeus who was a Jew but was working for the Romans. You can't even imagine. It's worse than than, than Russian collusion, y'all. I'm just going to tell you. And if you're not sure, there ain't none. But let's move on. And old Zacchaeus just wanted to get near Jesus. He couldn't buy him a ticket. You know why? Because the ones that had the front row seats weren't going to sell it to Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus tried to get, just wanted to see, I can identify. So finally he climbed the tree. Y'all, there is no way in the time that we have tonight for me to express to you just how significant it would be in this century for a man who was wealthy to climb a tree. It would have been the most undignified, unimaginable thing that a rich person could do. But at that moment, Zacchaeus didn't care. He had everything except the main thing. And the Bible said that while everybody there, and most likely thousands of people were gathered, that everybody there was looking down with hatred on Zacchaeus, except Jesus who looked up in the tree with compassion. Now I'm going to tell you, if I'd have been there and I'd have seen Zacchaeus, I would have thought about the time that Zacchaeus went to my mama's house. My daddy's grave still fresh. Only a week after he died. And Zacchaeus went up to the door. (laughs) I understand your husband's dead. Well, there's there's a bereavement tax that Rome has sent me to collect. A death tax. Zacchaeus would look in his book and he realized... Uh, The death tax for this man is only $30. Ma'am, the death tax for your husband is $300. Either you pay it or I will take your home at this moment. Sir, I I don't have that that, on me. I I don't know what I'm going to do. All right, then I'll take your house. No, 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 wait, wait, wait. And she would take every dime that she had in savings, every dime that she could scrape up, her food money, her medical money, everything. And she would hand it over to Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus would take the $30 and put it in the pouch for Rome and the $270 and put it in his own pocket. I'd have hated him as much as everybody else there did. I'm just being honest. Because that's the kind of person Zacchaeus was. There's not a more wretched and a more miserable and a more awful person in all the Scripture than Zacchaeus. And I don't understand it, but I'm thankful for it. That in spite of him, Jesus loved him. Because you see, I might have only been an eight-year-old little boy who had only stolen one thing in my life. It was called a thrifty nickel. I thought it was a free little paper that had old cars on it. And I took it and I found out when I got home I was supposed to pay a nickel for it. That's the only thing I'd ever stolen in my life before I got saved that I know of. 
But it took the same amount of grace and the same amount of mercy to forgive me that it did to forgive Zacchaeus. I tell you that story, and, and I know right now you're struggling because you, you're, you're just really mad at Zacchaeus because how could he do that? I don't understand it, but Jesus loved him. Jesus wanted to save him. By the way, there is a caveat to this story. I don't know why I'm playing with the microphone anymore. There's a caveat to this story. If them people that hated Zacchaeus so much would have realized the benefit of him getting saved. Because you see, this old boy didn't stay lost. He didn't stay a thief. He got saved. And he would go back to mama's house. She'd say, what do you want? You've taken everything I have. I'm not eating in a week. He said, ma'am, I'm so sorry. Ma'am, I've met this man named Jesus and he... He radically changed my life. And I know I only took $300 from you. But ma'am, here's $1,200. Would this help you out? Wow, the power of the gospel. You think Jesus don't know what's best. Wow. I was watching Fox News the other day. One of the commentators, he was right riled up. And he said, what in the world needs to happen with these crazy people that want us to be a socialist country? And I cried out, they need Jesus. And the whole crowd of them up there does, by the way. I'll tell you a quick story. I'll make it quick. One of my best friends in the whole wide world ran for Congress and he won. This man has kissed one woman in his whole life and he married her. Not to mention all the other things that most of politicians have done with a hundred women. But anyway. And not that this will send you to hell. Don't misunderstand. But he's never smoked a cigarette or anything else. He's never had a drop of alcohol on his lips. He's never said a curse word. I don't know anybody else like this fellow that's as straight as this guy. He was called to preach when he was a little boy. He's been preaching since he was about ten years old. Just an amazing story. And God called him to step out of the pulpit into the political arena. And he won. And they couldn't find anything real on him, so they made up some stuff and they nearly killed him. He'll have surgery next Monday trying to save his life. Because those in Washington said, listen, big boy, you belong behind the pulpit, not up here with us. We're going to send you back where you came from. When you get an opportunity, pray for Mark Harris. He's a good man. Don't you believe the junk you might hear about him on the news? He's one of the finest men ever wore shoe leather. Let me move on. I didn't mean to get into that. But there you go. Thirdly, there was the rich man in hell. We don't have time to talk about that. But remember that rich man, what did he do? Please send somebody to tell my brothers. There's rich men too. He realized in hell that it didn't matter what he had on earth. What he had in eternity was unescapable. Number three, and I'm done, okay? I promise. Six minutes behind already. Number three, not only do the down and out need Jesus, not only do the up and out need Jesus. But number three, the in and out need Jesus. Now what does that mean, preacher? Jesus said, be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the Mecca of religious life. Everybody in Jerusalem knew the law. 
Everybody in Jerusalem had been witness to the mercies and the miracles of Jesus. Everybody in Jerusalem knew about Jesus. But he said you need to go even into Jerusalem and share the gospel. Billy Graham said the biggest mission field in America is the local church because so many people are mistakenly thinking that they are going to heaven when they die. What do I mean the in and out? Those who fill the pews and fill the roles of the churches, but their name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. Matthew 7, 22. And many will come. In fact, the, the Greek word is the word majority. Jesus said, the majority of people that come before me and say, Lord, look at all. In fact, they say, Lord, Lord. Say it twice. Interesting. They say, Lord, Lord, look at what we've done for you. We've preached messages. We've performed miracles. We've sung songs. We've served in committees. We've tithed and we've gone on mission trips. And we've done everything just right. And Jesus with a broken heart and a quivering lip will proclaim, Depart from me, for I never knew you. All of your work was in vain. They were in, but they were out. Judas sat with the twelve as Jesus washed their feet. An hour later, he would betray him. Nicodemus, the zealot, the guy voted number one in the who's who of religious life. Jesus said, Nicodemus, while all of the benevolent things you've done are admirable, you, yes, you, Nicodemus, must be born again. Cornelius in Acts 10, who was righteous but did not respect the things of the Lord. The in and out. I, I'm very hesitant when I preach this because I don't want anybody in the church saying, boy, he, he's just uh, trying to give us a guilt trip or to cause us to question our salvation. Listen, I want to tell you, there are two lies of the devil that you better not ever listen to. Number one, the devil loves to convince lost people they're saved. He didn't mind anybody thinking they're saved. And the devil loves to convince saved people they're lost because that'll keep them so overwhelmed with agony over their own spiritual condition, they'll do nothing to affect someone else's. In this message, we see so many illustrations, but I think about the prodigal. You remember the father that had the two prodigal sons? One was down and out, but the other was in and out. The first son, the youngest of the two, he broke his father's heart when he left. But the oldest son broke his father's heart when he had no compassion or no joy when his brother came home. You do this and we're done. Love me, Samantha Griffith. About once a year I go to Mount Airy. I walk down the street. I whistle. I get my hair cut at Floyd's. I have me a snappy lunch. Fried pork chop sandwich. And I just reminisce about times that probably were a little bit more normal, a little less insane than they are now. But can I tell you something? I know our time's up. This will be the last thing. I promise. This is my official real closing, okay? Even Andy Griffith changed my life. Now you ready? 
Preacher, this is good stuff. Now don't fall asleep till I get done, all right? There's an episode called The Big House. The Big House begins, Andy and Barney and Opie and Gomer are sitting around the radio listening to Leonard Blesch. Okay? And all of a sudden they break in with an important announcement. Four men have just escaped the state penitentiary and are considered armed and dangerous. But wait, wait, there's breaking news. Two of those four have now been captured and are on their way to the Mayberry Courthouse Jail. Mayberry, Paul, did you hear that? Mayberry, they're bringing them here. Andy turns off the radio. Says, Opie, you and Gomer better go on. Gomer takes Opie and they leave. Barney begins frantically getting everything ready and within just moments they bring these two escapees who have now been captured. And they bring them in and they lock them in the cell. Andy goes over, gets two shotguns down from the wall, looking very serious. He has now put his gun belt on that he never wore. And he begins to make his way out and he turns to Barney and he says, now keep a close eye on these two. Barney said, nothing to worry about. Not once, not twice, but three times. Somehow Barney lets those two escape. But thanks to a well-written plot, not once, not twice, but three times, Andy recaptures them. Andy brings them back, locks them in. Barney says, it won't happen again. He captures them. He locks them in. It won't happen again. And the third time Andy recaptures these two, he locks them in the cell. He takes the key and he gets right up in Barney's face. And here's what he says. Barney, I'm not going to be able to go out there and catch those two that are still at large if I have to keep catching these same two over and over and over again. I watched that years ago and it hit me. At that point I'd been at the pastor of my church probably 10 years. And I would say no less than 95% of my time, energy, and effort. And I love you church, but I want you to hear this. 95% of my time, energy, and efforts were spent trying to recapture my members week after week after week. And I mean this with all of the love in my heart. But as a pastor, I was scared to death that if I missed a surgery or if I missed a shut-in visit or if I missed any of those obligations or expectations of the pastorate that I would begin losing those that were already in the church and already captured. And because of all of that, I had no time or energy or effort left within me to go out there and catch those that were still at large. 
it hit me this weekend. When my kids were young, I was too busy for them. And now they're too busy for me. I was as good a pastor as any church has ever had. For eight years, I did not miss a Sunday. I was a kid, I always had perfect attendance. I wanted it as a pastor, I guess. I spent many Christmas days by myself sending my family away because I had to stay there because sister so-and-so was near death. And I realized, Lord, as much as these people mean to me, the calling of Acts 1-8 is not to be a keeper of the flock. Please do not share what I'm getting ready to tell you outside of this building. I stayed at that church 18 years. And on the last Sunday that I was there, I was excited because I'd been through about a five-week um, you know, finale of preaching messages and all. And for the last couple of weeks, I began imagining what that last Sunday was going to be like after 18 years. My children had been born there, the whole bit, you know. We have an adopted daughter in California, and I figured they would probably fly her out to sing because she sings like an angel in six languages, by the way. So I'd prepared a very brief message, literally, believe it or not, like a five-minute message on greater things. I asked my associate pastors, I said, guys, tell me what, what they're going to do this Sunday just so I can be prepared. I don't like it, uh, you know, surprises. Yeah, I'll be too emotional. And they said, we don't know what they're doing, Pastor. So all week I became more and more excited. That Saturday night I asked my wife, I said, do you know what they're doing in the morning? She said, I, haven't, I don't have a clue. And all I could think of was, you know, I'm this great pastor who's been there for so many things. I closed every casket with every funeral that I'd done, and I did over 600. I would walk down and I would fold the things in and I would stand there and I would pray for the family and I would love on that person one last time. And I would close that casket. I was there for all the births. Got up that Sunday morning and I preached at the Lake Church and I went and I put my best suit on. I got it out of the dry cleaners and I was there and I walked in and I thought, that's kind of odd. There's not that many people here. They must be planning them in the background. They're going to come out like singing, waving. I don't know. <laughs> and I got up and... And I preached. Had a young man to baptize. I held him the day he was born. I dedicated him. He was about two. and Talked to him. I baptized him. And I looked up. And then it hit me. There's nothing. And in that moment, I stood there in that baptistry and every bit of blood just flowed out of my body and I and I looked down and my wife was weeping because she could see the pain. And a friend said later, I know that made you mad. And I said, only at me. I know that hurt you. I said, only at me. Because I realized for 18 years, I kept catching the same people over and over again. And at the end of the day, we had had a lot of additions and a lot of things happened. But judging my 18-year ministry 
solely on Acts 1-8. I had not been a great pastor. But in many ways I had been a failure. I share that story not to make you feel sympathy for me or anything like that. But I beg you, church, I, I know we're out here in the sticks. I live in the sticks. Something special about the sticks, I won't tell you. But there are people who are down and out, up and out, in and out, that desperately need Jesus. God hadn't called us to be a church, to play games, to sing songs, to play dress up. But he called us to be his witnesses here, there, and everywhere. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.